if anything, I'd say just let adventure happen. Like, don't get wrapped up in the whole, you need the big money gear, the big money bike to do anything. Like, you can go have, I mean, I'm living proof of it. You can go have a cross-country adventure on a KLR and have just as much fun as someone, you know, who's got all the fancy stuff. Hey, what's up, podcast? Hey, Drew back again with another episode of Moto Adventure Unscripted. Uh, so today we're sitting down with Dana Brown. Uh, he's an Instagram personality, uh, Triumph Tiger owner. He's had several of those, uh, gone on to a lot of test rides on some other Triumph bikes. Basically, overall, adventure rider, uh, you know, moto camper and whatnot. So him and I sit down and talk about, uh, you know, basically the evolution through motorcycles, him going from, you know, dirt bikes living out in Colorado to getting involved in, in adventure bikes living up north um, and then moving down to South Carolina. Some of the riding that's available down there. Uh, we compare east and west coast riding and uh, get kind of in the philosophy of adventure riding and adventure motorcycles and taste and whatnot. So, you know, grab your beer, turn the podcast up in the car, wherever you're listening. Uh, hope you enjoy the show. So we've got we've got Dana Brown on the line today. What's up, man? Not too much. Uh, good to finally meet up with you. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, we've been chit chatting about this for God. It's been like a month now, I think. Yeah. Uh, I mean, my first question is, what is January like in South Carolina? Because uh, it's a bucket of suck here right now. Well, you had to ask the very pivotal question at the worst time of our the year for us. <laughs> um. So just to give you a heads up today, it was 70 degrees out, mm. nice and sunny. Tomorrow it's going to be 34 <laughs> and we are predicted to get an ice storm for the first time in four years. It's, uh... So needless to say, I don't think I'm riding a motorcycle this weekend. <laughs> it's, it's kind of par for the course for about the past three years. 2020, yep. man, everybody was locked down and I rode more than I've ridden in so long and, and it was wild and then just stuff started to come unraveled from that point whether this weird year has been really unpredictable. So that's, that's wild stuff. Oh yeah. I mean, it's kind of weird because normally like right now it's, you know, 50 to 70 during the day night's not too bad. So this is prime riding time right now, but uh, yeah. this ice storm literally came out of left field. So we're like, uh, I guess that means we're not doing too much this weekend. Are you actually in Charleston? Yes. Yeah. So, I literally live like three miles from downtown. Wow. That's going to be pretty wild because you guys are, I mean, I'm assuming quite close to the coast. I mean, the Atlantic ocean is probably half mile away. Yeah. That has to be, uh, has to be really interesting. My experience with uh, South Carolina would have been uh, Fort Jackson and uh, Columbia, uh, which was oh, yes. Sandy enough. So I'm sure Charleston, uh, Charleston is even more interesting. Good old relaxing Jackson. Um, yeah, it's let's just put it this way. I never got really good at riding in sand until I moved to South Carolina. <laughs> um, you know, riding in Colorado and Minnesota and the Mountain West and all that. I mean, you get a little sand. No, South Carolina is all sand. So, I mean, you get on some of the single track trails and the two track 
you might as well have like sand tires on the back tire of your bike most That's of the awesome. time. But I mean, like I said, I, I've become a much better sand rider because of it. I don't, you know, look at sand like an obstacle anymore. I'm like, nah, whatever. That's good stuff. So I guess we should probably rewind. You know, I know you as uh, the tiger guy on Instagram, but uh, I mean, how long have you been riding now? Oh, um, so that's like a multi-part question. Well, first, let's start with this. <laughs> Are you from Charleston originally? Oh, no. <laughs> and, then, and then tie that into how that relates to bikes and where, because your Instagram is a, is a wild collection of motorcycles from a lot of different places. Yeah. So I was a Coast Guard brat go- growing up. Uh, so I really don't have a hometown. I was born in Boston and raised predominantly in Massachusetts and Maine. And my, my motorcycle connection started in Maine when I was in high school. Both my parents were, you know, they rode Harleys. And when my mom got into riding, I want to say it was 2003. She picked up a little 500 CC Buell blast. Um, and you know, one of the days my mom and dad weren't home. I, jumped on it, <laughs> rode it down the driveway, rode it back. It was like, all right, this is cool. So I told my dad a couple of days later, I was like, Hey, I'd really like, you know, for you to teach me how to ride a bike and, you know, being my father and in the military, he was very strict and not patient. And I almost put the Buell blast into the side of a huge pine tree. <laughs> and I did not touch a motorcycle for probably four more years uh, until I joined the army and I was stationed in Kentucky. And at that point, my first bike I technically rode was a Ninja 250. So was that Knox or was that Campbell? Yes. No, I okay. was stationed. Uh, somehow I got restationed at Fort Knox after going there for basic training and all that. Uh, and I had a group of friends who, you know, this is early 2000s, 2006, 2007. So, you know, okay. You had the, the R1 was the big bike back then. Um, CBR 600 RR, I think was a big bike. Um, you know, that's when you really saw like the Jixxer 600, that, that's like really when like the sport, the 600 series sport bikes were really big and they were still fairly cheap. Yeah. So all my friends in the barracks had them. And my one friend who, you know, married, lived in housing, uh, he had an R1 and his wife had a Ninja 250. And she was pregnant, couldn't ride anymore. And he asked me, oh, hey, you want to learn how to ride a bike? Yeah, why not? So, you know, I jumped on a Ninja 250 and, you know, he, he outfitted me pretty well, you know, helmet, gloves and all that stuff. And I first learned riding around uh, the Fort Knox area, uh, the towns of Radcliffe and Elizabethtown. And then after that, I kind of, you know, would ride with them off into the country towards, uh, uh, we would go west of Fort Knox towards, uh, I can't think of the place in Indiana, Corden, Indiana. Um, we'd ride out in that area. And I mean, I did that probably for, you know, eight or 10 months. I was a quote unquote ghost rider, according to the army, because <laughs> I did not, I did not attend a motorcycle safety course and I didn't do, you know, all the safety training that you're supposed to do at the time. So I was one of the delinquents that, you know, they made safety briefs about, <laughs> But, uh, you know, needless to say, I mean, I was, I had a fairly level head on my shoulders, you know, I had great guys I was riding with who, you know, were like, they never, you know, put me in situations or forced me in situations where it's like, Hey, you need to go 160, 
you know, down, you know, the highway, do this. Like, no, we never did any of that. That's but uh it's I might stop only because it's it's inside baseball. Cause for folks that weren't <clears throat> excuse me, weren't in the military, they don't realize that uh yeah, the army's really big on uh knowing whether or not you have firearms in your home oh. and, and and you know, they need to know what car you drive and you gotta have a sticker on it. And yeah, if you got a motorcycle, there's mandatory training for that. I used to work with the Air Force Base here, so they used to have that whatever that stand down was thing that they would do like annually, like you had to have so many miles and some other stuff. So anyway, <laughs> just just explain that for folks that aren't familiar. Yep. So pick that up where you were. So uh so that was the Kentucky. Then uh I got stationed in, or I re-enlisted, got stationed in Fort Lewis, Washington. And at the time, you know, when I re-enlisted, I I was into sports cars. And I was in sports cars for the longest time. You know, I had Mitsubishi Lance Revolutions, Super WRXs. I mean, you name the Japanese sports car that was fast at the time. I probably had it at one time or another. Uh, So because I was into sports cars, I got away from motorcycles. Um, It was something I always wanted to get into, but it was like, I have a $30,000 Evo I could barely make payments on. Or do I want to get the $7,000 CBR? Uh, I live in Washington state and riding a CBR in seven months of rain is not going to be fun. So I'm going to get the car. I just can't help but to think it's another, it's another military joke. There were so many car dealerships right off post that yep. were ready to sign you up for a loan on a car. Oh, well, I mean, if you, do you want to jump in the Evo store real quick? So I was at, Fort, I was stationed at Fort Knox. The surge in Iraq was starting to gear up pretty big. And the army said, Hey, we'll give you $20,000 if you re-enlist. Hmm. Well, I'm with a duty station of choice and airborne school. I'm like, you know what? I'm 22 years old. This sounds like the deal of the century. Sign me up. <laughs> and literally four days later, I went to the Mitsubishi dealer. They had three brand new Lancer Evolutions. And I was like, I want the yellow one. Yep. And I didn't look at the price. I didn't do any of that. And that was a very early, early financial lesson I learned in life. <laughs> That's funny. There, there are so many guys when we were coming home from overseas 0304 that uh, they had a Harley dealership in Kuwait City right off the PX. <laughs> so everybody and their mother bought Harleys in a foreign country so that they could have them delivered when they got home. So, yeah, yep. if, if folks don't realize that uh, for as much as. I love GI Joe. We all have to understand that uh, giving 19 year old kids a bunch of money <laughs> and a steady paycheck does mean they make some pretty poor financial decisions. Oh yes. Yep. So, uh, so I was back in Washington and I had the Evo and all that. And my, the girl who'd become my first wife, um, you know, her, her brothers, they were probably two or three years younger than me. They had a couple old like Honda, the, the early 80s, like CR 125s, 250s, like the big red machine bikes. And I mean, we were all like gearheads. So we would tinker with them on weekends. And they had like a seven acre farm yeah. out in east, out in Western Washington. So I would literally, you know, go kickstart them and ride them around the farm and do all that stuff. And that, that was it. Like that was the limit of motorcycling for me at the time, because like you said earlier, the army made it very difficult to own a bike. Um, and my unit at Fort Lewis was even like worse than most other places because they played the rank game where they're like, Oh, you can't own a motorcycle unless you're a certain rank. Or if you live in the barracks, you cannot have a motorcycle. So it was just, there's too many hoops to jump through and it just wasn't worth owning a motorcycle for the longest time when I was in the army. Uh, and then, you know, a couple of years later, 
it was probably 2012. I'm in Afghanistan. And um, I went through a pretty bad deployment. You know, we were in a very, probably one of the most dangerous areas in Afghanistan where, you know, we were getting firefights and all that stuff. And, you know, outside of that stuff, my, uh, my first wife decided to, to leave me. So I'm like, all right, whatever. I mean, there's not a whole lot you can do. So at the time, one of my, uh, one of the other NCOs in my, in my section said, Hey, uh, check out this movie I just found about Ewan McGregor riding <laughs> motorcycles around the world. And I was like, what? Like you can do that. So sure enough, you know, you, we shared the, the math, the, the magical hard drive that everyone in the military has knows something about. Uh, basically when you're deployed, you got the one guy in your unit who has an external hard drive with every movie known to man, every TV show, and you, you know, share it, you know, grab what you want, vice versa. So anyways, my buddy had a, a long way around and a long way down on that hard drive. So I watched, you know, the long way around and I was hooked. I was like, man, I'm going to get back to the U.S. Um, I'm going to take my money for Afghanistan. I'm going to buy a GS 1150. We're going to you know, ride around to Alaska, Canada. It doesn't matter. We're going places. And at the time I was stationed in Colorado. So it's like, what better place to yeah. you know get into adventure motorcycling? Well, when I came back to the U S and I saw the price of BMWs, that got shot down pretty quick. So I was like, all right, well, I'm going to go look for, you know, something cheaper. And at, for some reason in Colorado in 2013, you could not find a dual sport or an adventure bike at all. Like Craigslist, you couldn't find them. They just were not there. So what I ended up doing was I had uh, two soldiers in my platoon who they're from the Midwest. They're big dual sport guys. And they're like, you know, why don't you just buy, you know, a beater clapped out dirt bike, turn it into an enduro and then just dual sport it. So I was like, all right, you know, whatever. I'm pretty mechanical. I can fix quite a bit. So I ended up uh, for 600 bucks. I found a 2001 Suzuki RM250 two-stroke. Uh, literally, it was a rolling frame in a box full of parts. And the kid I bought it from was like, you know, this bike runs. It just needs to be put together. Uh, so one of, I, I had one of my buddies come over to my house that, that night, and we literally laid everything out in the garage. And bought a six pack of beer and started putting it together. And for the most part, it was fairly complete. And after a couple of phone calls to Rocky mountain ATV to get new plastics, uh, basically, you know, within a week or two, that bike was back together running, you know, and all that. So at this point in my life, I had ridden a Beale blast. I'd ridden a Ninja 250 and I'm thinking the Suzuki RM250 is just like a Ninja 250. <laughs> Oh no. Um, where I, where I lived in Colorado, uh, I was stationed at Colorado Springs at Fort Carson, but I lived just South of Colorado Springs in Pueblo, which is all desert and prairie. So out in front of my house is nothing but desert as long as you can see. So I get up there, kickstart it, fires up, pop the clutch in first gear. And that bike just took off like a banshee. And once I got it out of control, I was like, okay, okay. I, I can't, this thing will wheelie on command pretty much. Um, pretty much for six, seven months, I rode that 250 and I mean, it, it was a desert bike, you know, I had a four gallon Clark tank on it. I mean, 
I didn't know too much about suspension or different brake setups or really rejetting a carb. But where I lived, you know, I, I had desert trails and desert roads for miles on end. And that was the place to, you know, to, to ride. And one day I, uh, I found a Jeep book in Barnes and Noble and I had, you know, all these off-road trails and places you can take dual sports and all that. So I'm like, you know, I'm going to start doing some of these. So the very first one I did wasn't too bad. It was probably like, you know, 8,000 feet at elevation. It was single track. It was pretty tame. And after that, I was like, oh, I got this. I, there's nothing I can't handle. Famous (laughs) last words, right? Um, So I decided to tackle a trail that went up uh, Mount Hermon, or uh, it went up to uh, an area called Mount Hermon, which is about 13,000 feet. It's the highest pass you can get to in Colorado um, with a four-wheel drive vehicle. Uh, but I don't think it's, uh, you can't get down the other side because the other mm. side is uh, like a wilderness area. So you can come up through national forest land on one side, but on the other side, the road literally ends and you just can't get there. But it's like one of the highest areas you can take a vehicle in Colorado. So, uh, I'm like, I'm going to ride my two stroke up there. So put the two stroke in the back of my Jeep, get up there, crank it up. Everything's good. You know, start climbing, up, cl- start climbing climbing the switchbacks on the mountains and it's a bumpy ride. I mean, it's a rock road. You got big baby heads, you got gravel. I mean, it's, it would be very difficult on a, on any bike. So I'm cranking up there. And when I get above the tree line, I start getting up on these, you know, I'm on these exposed ledges of this ridge line, And all of a sudden I'm like, why can't I get out of third gear? <laughs> oh, that's right. There's no oxygen for the bike to run. <laughs> So I keep pushing it. I keep pushing it. And I get to like, there's probably like the summits in sight and there's like four or five super steep switchbacks. And at this point I can't get out of first gear and I'm like, I'm not quitting. We're going. And I, you know, get the bike up there and it has all it can do to run. Like it's barely idling. I'm like, okay, I made it. Took a two stroke up to 13,000 feet. Don't know what I'm doing. Took some pictures. Um, and I actually wrote a blog entry about that in my blog, mm-hmm. uh, strikeradv.com. It's kind of might be comical to some people, but uh, you know, I rode my I rode that 250 down there and I dumped it like four times on the way down. You know, broke a clutch lever and all that. But uh, that what that really started though was like I need a true purpose built bike for off road riding. Because um, I mean, an RM250 is designed for a moving cross track. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I need a true purpose-built bike. And at the time, um, thanks, Army, we were getting ready to <laughs> deploy again. So, and I was kind of preparing for my exit out of the Army anyways. Um, so I sold the RM, you know, one on my last deployment, which we were, you know, we were over in Jordan, but we were doing stuff over in, you know, Syria and Western Iraq, you know, doing the big fight on ISIS. And... On my downtime, I was looking on like Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace. I wanted a, I wanted a, a 650 Thumper. That's kind of like the bike. I was like, you know, this will probably do everything that I need it to do, but not well. And my platoon sergeant at the time had a Generation One KLR. So like, I was asking him like every question you could think of, like, you know, <laughs> what do I do? Soft luggage or hard luggage? Um, you know, is a carb bike better than a fuel injected bike? You know, stuff like that. 
And he, I mean, he was a quiet kid from Michigan and he's like, you know, just, he's like, just get a KLR. You'll be fine. Just, it'll work itself out. And that was probably like some of the best advice he, you know, he ever gave me, but, uh, you know, we come back from deployment. I'm like, I'm going to go find a KLR, go to the Kawasaki dealer. They had like a brand new one for like seven grand. I'm like, that's, that's it. I'm going to buy it. Go back the next day and it was gone. So I'm like, Oh, okay. So we're going to start the search for the used bike market again. And at the time, same thing happened in Colorado again, cannot find a dirt, dirt bike, dual sport adventure bike anywhere. Um, so what I ended up finding was I found a Yamaha XT225 and I wasn't thrilled with it, but then I stumbled across a video from Everride on YouTube and he did a video about, you know, riding an XT225 250 through uh, Colorado with a, with a friend of his. And he was like, you know, this is the most underrated dual sport you can buy. Yeah. Like, oh, crap. You know, if Everride and at the time, like this is 20. 2014 2015 so like everride was a pretty big presence for dual sporter motorcycles and adventure motorcycles on youtube and so i ended up finding one you know this guy had it he had a 2007 he used it as his ranch bike basically he'd ride the perimeter of his like you know 80 acre ranch in colorado so it had never really been used or abused not like you and i would use a bike (laughs) and you know, I bought it off him for like 1700 bucks, brand new tires on it. I mean, it was mint. And uh, I took it home. I was all proud of it. And that night, I'm like, I'm going to take it for a spin. Didn't check to see if it had gas in it. <laughs> I literally, I get a mile from my house and I run out of gas in the middle of the desert. And I had to call my, um, call my wife. And I'm like, hey, uh, can you bring the gas can out? Because I'm an idiot. But uh, so the XT was really kind of the first true dual sport bike I had. And that was the bike that really, I developed a lot of my riding skills on for off-road riding. Uh, it was great because, you know, living in a desert, I mean, I could go, you know, 75, 80 miles an hour, straight, straight line distance, no problems, no questions asked. And then every now and then, you know, you get the occasional sand hill or rise, you know, ridge line. So you had a little terrain, but that bike could also go 55, 60 on pavement. And it was, you know, road legal. So I could, I would take it about 20 miles from Pueblo down into the Southern uh, San Juan mountains. And, you know, I'd ride single track two track, you know, mountain roads. So basically for like a, a year, that was the bike that I had. And I kind of, after a while I was getting bored with it. I'm like, you know, I need to go. I, I, I'm tired of these, you know, one day trips. I, I need to do something big with it. And at the time I, I found out that there was a thing called a Colorado backcountry discovery route. And I literally, you know, threw a, threw a set of bags on the back of that bike and, you know, bought the map off of uh, Butler maps and went off and did my first BDR. We need to give and, a Butler maps a plug for that, by the way, their maps for the BDRs and everything else are absolutely stellar. Oh, they are amazing. Yeah. And waterproof with all the details they have in it. They're lifesavers. So, you know, and I had it like, (laughs) I had it taped to my gas tank too. Yeah. So like, that was kind of like how I was navigating. Cause at the time I didn't have a GPS and I had like an iPhone five, which I don't think anyone had a navigation app for that was like, I think Rever was just starting to come out. Uh, What year was that? 
I want to say it was 2015. Yeah. Yeah. They were pretty young at that point. I want to say I jumped on them right about that same time frame. So yeah, but just 15 bucks for a Butler map of where oh, you yeah. live is I, knowing that your electronics are going to fail at some point. It's worth every penny. Yep. So, uh, so I did that BDR and I did it in June, which anyone that's ever been to Colorado in June will tell you that that's the worst time to do any, back country motorcycling because there's still snow in the passes and you know starting out i i was you know making a pretty good time and then i got to my first pass and there was probably a 50 foot section of snow that was about three feet deep (laughs) so uh kind of manhandled the xt through that i'm thinking like all right you know that's that's probably it i'm looking at the maps and i'm like you know that's the highest pass i have so i should be good oh no i had two more so what I thought would be a seven day trip turned into an 11 day trip, but I mean, the, I mean, I, I was hooked uh, at that point. I was like, you know, the XT is great and all, but it had short legs. It just, it was a 225. I mean, it just couldn't, I needed something bigger. And that was the bike that really opened the door into adventure motorcycling and, you know, places you can go places, you know, you can see stuff like that. And it kind of bought me time until I could find, you know, the the bike I wanted, which was a KLR. And, you know, I sold my XT to a, to a high school kid who's looking for his first motorcycle. And I was like, you know, that's the best bike you ever could have for something like that. And, you know, I pick up my KLR and it was a 2011, nothing special. Uh, The Kawasaki dealership just got it in on trade. And, I mean, the guy that owned it, I think he only put 2,000 miles on it in like five years. Like this, this thing like had never seen dirt ever. And I told the dealership, I was like, can you put a set of Dunlop 606s on it or something? Like, give me a dirt tire because I'm going to use and abuse this bike. So, of course, they put Dunlop 606s on it. And that, that was really the bike that set everything off for me. I mean, at that time, like I literally threw my soft bags on it every weekend that I wasn't working or that if my wife you know, I was working at the hospital, those shifts. I mean, I was gone. You know, I was out in the Southern Mount, Southern San Juan mountains. I was over towards, uh, you know, the maroon Aspen area. Um, and I would even go play in a desert too with it. So, I mean, like for probably seven, eight months, like that bike and I, we went on, we covered some mileage and we ended up running the Colorado BDR again. Uh, we did it much faster and much later in the year. So it was, you know, a lot better. Uh, I also did the New Mexico BDR with it, which was a lot of fun. So, I mean, like the KLR was really a bike that, I mean, I, I call them for adventure bikes. I call it a rite of passage bike <laughs> yeah. because how many people do you, do you talk to or know that have said, I've, you know, I had a KLR at one point in my life, or I know someone who had a KLR. So I've called it the king of dual sports and I've not owned one, but I want to own one for a while. That just, I don't know how long, I don't know how much I like it, but I feel like it's a box that I need to check one way or the other. It's, and everyone calls them like the Jack of all trades bike. I mean, it can do everything just not well. And it's exactly what that bike is. And even today, like the, the third generations, you know, like, Yes, you can go 75, 80 on, on the highway with it. Is it going to be comfortable? Nope, but it'll do it. Uh, can you ride single track on it? 
you could. It's going to be big and heavy, but it can do it. Um, but you can also ride around the world on that bike. You know, so many people have ridden those bikes from Alaska to Argentina. I mean, those those bikes are indestructible. And my KLR was the same exact way. I mean, I beat that poor bike to death, and I know it's still it's still actually in South Carolina. It's down in Beaufort right now owned by a Marine and it's, you know, still getting mileage on it. So, but, uh, yeah, the KLR was the bike that really got, really started taking me places and really got me into adventure motorcycling on the scale of, you know, weekend trips, week long trips, you know, touring across, you know, entire States in the country. I mean, it was, it was a bike that really set the stage for where I am now. And I mean, I don't want to keep rambling on and on about that KLR, but I mean, it just, I, I just have a fondness for that bike because it took me so many places. That's the thing, right? Like everybody has a bike and it, 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 it gets its own life, right? Like at some point there's some character to it because you've, you've done things with it that you can't turn around. And people are like, Drew, do you still have the scrambler? I'm like, that thing's going in the casket with me, dude. <laughs> Nobody wants that thing. And I've now done so much with it. And I'm already thinking about more dumb shit to do with it. But there's just no way I can let it go. Yep. And like the, I, I think it was like when I moved from Colorado to Minnesota, like that's when that bike really took on a whole different meaning for me because Colorado is a dual sport adventure bike mecca. Like, you know, you got Colorado, Utah, Arizona, New Mexico. Within a day's ride, you can hit a BDR. You can hit, part, you know, significant portions of the Trans-America Trail, the Continental Divide Trail. Like, you can, you can choose your own adventure. When I went to Minnesota, I lived on the outskirts of Minneapolis. And despite being in farmland with gravel roads, you know, for hundreds of miles in every direction, you kind of had to travel to get into terrain or to get into wooded areas. And with the KLR, that's kind of when I started to notice like, okay, I would really like to have cruise control or (laughs) I would really like something that had a little bit better, softer suspension. So when I'm riding for seven hours, um, it doesn't feel like I'm sitting on a two by four. So, I mean, that's kind of when the, the bug first got planted of, you know, Hey, maybe I should upgrade. And when I bought the KLR, I was like, this is the bike, you know, this is going to be the be all end all bike. I'll do, you know, everything I ever want to do on this bike. And I think we all think that at one point or another with a certain bike that we all own and the KLR eventually just kind of the limitations started to become more and more well-known. And it wasn't really until when I moved to South Carolina for about three years later, um, mostly because my wife and her family were sick and tired of the snow and the cold. And <laughs> yeah, it was just Minnesota was a very interesting brief stopover. Um, were you stationed wife, there or did, no? Did you, okay. So, so you gotten out of the army and that was so I got out in there. 2016. And originally the plan was my wife and I were going to continue living in Colorado. Her parents moved up to Minneapolis because her stepfather is a vice president of a very large frozen foods company. And so it turned into like, you know, hey, there's a lot better economic and job opportunities in Minnesota, you know, move up there. And before we did, I, you know, where my wife's family is from is in, in Southern Colorado. I mean, it gets cold. They get snow. They don't get the cold and snow that you get in the Midwest. 
or that I got when I grew up in Maine. So they had no concept of like, you know, what wind chill was uh, like negative 30 or, you know, what it's like to get lake effect snow or something like that. So we go up to Minnesota. First winter was pretty mild. My wife's like, oh, this isn't bad. (laughs) The next winter was the polar vortex. And we had the polar vortex where it was like negative 35 with the wind chill. Uh, We also had six feet of snow, like in one snowstorm. And after that, my, my in-laws were like, we're moving to, you know, Savannah, Georgia or Charleston. We're, we're going to buy a house on the beach. We're done with this. And my wife and I were like, well, we'll follow you because we are done with this too. So that's kind of how I ended up coming to South Carolina. But with the KLR, uh, basically I rode the KLR from Minnesota to South Carolina, which was my first cross country adventure. And probably one of the smartest, dumbest ideas I've ever had in a very, very, very long time. Um, primarily with the way that whole trip plan was planned did not go according to plan at all. I was basically going to ride from Minneapolis to upstate New York. I think it was like four day, four days ride. And then I was going to jump on a mid Atlantic BDR ride that down to Virginia or through, through into Virginia and then work my way down to Charleston, which is only like 340 miles. That was the idea. Um, on day two, Hurricane Dorian had other plans. So my wife and my, my, two, my son, who was like two and a half at the time, had to evacuate into, uh, into Georgia and my wife's family and all that stuff. So I basically had to divert on day two towards uh, directly to South Carolina, which actually wasn't really a bad thing. Uh, mostly because that trip, I want to say day two, I was in Southern Illinois or might've been even Western Indiana. Mm. And I, I mean, when I knew I had to divert, I started, you know, I was on Rever. I, w- I had like every satellite imagery map known to man up and my, I had like, you know, Butler maps for the area. Like I had everything you could find. And I'm thinking like, you know, maybe I can make a trip of this still. And Basically, the idea I had was I'm going to cut through, you know, Indiana, Kentucky, Tennessee, North Carolina, into South Carolina, but I'm going to do it as much gravel and dirt roads as possible. And if I can't do that, I'm going to, you know, ride backcountry roads. I'm going to stay off the highway, essentially. And I mapped out a route, and sure enough, you know, with the exception of coming into Kentucky from southern Indiana, because I crossed across that new cable stayed bridge to the east of uh louisville i can't think of the name of it the lewis and clark bridge i think it is it's on the wrong side of kentucky for me so i got yeah <laughs> yeah it's 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 the special side of kentucky <laughs> that's southern indiana man yeah um that's that's the the Jenna west area <laughs> her and my buddy curly so my buddy curly is the most kentucky guy i know that actually lives in louisville <laughs> but uh it was kind of interesting because I was like, as I rode down through central Kentucky, like I ended up coming to an area like where my parents had briefly lived when I was stationed in Kentucky, you know, I went through areas I used to train in. So it's kind of like going back in time. Like, Oh yeah, yeah. I've been here before. I've Um, called Kentucky a time machine in so many different ways. Just so much of the state is just, it doesn't change. It's untouched. And like, so the town my parents used to live in was called Taylorsville just South of, 
Louisville is a suburb farming community, stuff like that. And I hadn't been back since like 2013. And in 2018, nothing changed. <laughs> no. So, yeah, it was just, I mean, it was, it was pretty sparse still. Yeah. And in, in grandma's neighborhood, the restaurants just get new signs. Like it's just, <laughs> nothing really changes. The mom and pop place is just kind of open and close every few years as, you know, somebody else makes a run at it and that kind of thing. But yep. yeah, it's pretty much the same. They straighten a road for every now and then. I think it was because of a cool, a school bus stop. I was pretty mad. It's one of my favorite curves on the way into grandma's house and they straightened it out. And I'm like, well, it probably saved some poor kid's life. So it's probably worth it. But uh, yeah, so for that trip, you know, I busted through Kentucky into Tennessee. Um, you know, I rode through Cumberland Gap to get into Tennessee. And then I started working my way in towards, um, initially it was going to go ride the dragon. I was about to say that. But I mean, I, I did the dragon before in, in my Evo, in, my, in a sports car. Yeah. And I remembered the lessons from back then. And I'm like, <laughs> eh. This is not going to be near as much fun on a bike, especially like the KLR was loaded down. It had panniers, you know, it was, it was just not going to be fun. It's, so it is a very different dragon when your bike's loaded full of luggage and when it's not as a guy who used to vacation there every fall. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, at this point, I think it was like early September. So like, I think it was Labor Day weekend, actually. I could have been there. So I was like, ah, I probably don't want to do that. So I ended up finding like, a series of a series of roads that went through um into like hot springs north carolina over towards Asheville, and i had way more fun out there anyways the rattler and, goes into to hot springs if i remember correctly so that's actually the road that i i ended up riding part of that that's fun um, when you don't get stuck behind traffic i like that it's pretty yeah yeah i mean i kind of rode it i was like 3 30 or 4 in the afternoon there was no one on the road like not saying i wound the klr up because you can't really but I mean, I was going 55, 60. Yeah. And I was like, man, this is a lot of fun. I could get in a lot of trouble out here with the right bike. I was I was hustling with a loaded scrambler and then I got stuck behind some Sunday church drivers. <laughs> what are you but, drinking, uh, man? I'm drinking water. Oh, it's disgusting. Yeah, I gotta hydrate. You need to so. filter filter that through some uh some uh corn mash or something. I don't drink the hard stuff as much as I used to anymore. I broke, I found, out, the, broke out the Buffalo just for this talk, man. <laughs> I found out that uh, as you get older and the harder the stuff is you drink, you don't recover as well. Yes. So, and then you gain weight and yeah, we just don't need that. <laughs> yeah, This is propel for after anyway. You're <laughs> <saying>. <laughs> Fair enough. But uh, so I mean, you know, that trip, like, it was fun on the KLR. I, I mean, I enjoyed it. it. Had its good moments and its bad moments, but like that was the trip where the KLR's limitations were very well known. And one of the things I told myself was, you know, earlier that year, like I just graduated college, I went back to school to get my degree after I left the army, and I told myself, you know, when I graduate, I'm going to buy a new bike. And we get, I get to South Carolina, and after a couple months, you know, I'm in my my first real big grown-up job you know after the military and all that stuff and i started looking at bikes and at that point the adventure market was exploding i mean this is probably three years ago and i mean you had the africa twin 
you had the Tiger 800s, you had the, I want to say the KTM 790s that just came out. Not the um, 790. That would have probably been uh, 1090, 1190 time frame. Might okay, have been yes. 1190. That might 1190 have is what it was. Yeah. But uh, Which was a big so, deal at the time. Yeah. And so you had all these like big actual adventure bikes coming out. And I mean, I, I test rode a couple. I went through a couple demo days and I was like, you know, they're, they're nice and all, but I don't want to drop 20 grand on a BMW. I don't want to drop 17 grand on a KTM 1190R. Like it was just, they're pricey. I, did, I didn't That's... want to spend the, the money for a big bike. And what ended up happening was I waited. And I think that was the best thing I could have done. Um, you know, I waited and around that time, like I started, I think there was a shift in the social media platforms for adventure motorcycling, um, primarily on Instagram and YouTube, because you saw people like Steve Camrad, you, um, Jenna West, Jen's Bodo's Adventures. Uh, I can't now. I'm now I'm like John Blanks. I was gonna say to me, it's Tiger people because I was gonna ask you that question. Yep. That went on is, is that everybody I knew had a Triumph Tiger, and I laugh yeah. and I look back at them now. A lot of them don't have them anymore. No, <laughs> but everybody had a Tiger. They're, they're traders. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but I mean, but you're right. I mean, everyone had a Tiger or everyone had a European uh, adventure bike. Yeah, and. At that point, I'm like, you know, maybe there's something there. Maybe I need to start looking away from the Japanese brands. Because at the time, like, my heart was set on the Africa Twin. And, I mean, it's a fantastic bike, and I, I loved it. But it just, after riding them numerous times, I was like, I don't think this is the bike for me. And I stumbled upon, you know, I went to my Triumph dealer, a local Triumph dealer, and they had a KTM 1090 that they just took it on trade. And, I, and they let me ride it, and that thing was it was a blast. Like that bike was like amazing. And I mean, I was, I mean, and they only wanted like nine grand for it. It had like 5,600 miles on it. It had nothing on it. That would be a deal on it today. Yeah. <laughs> and like, and the reason why it was the, the triumph dealer were selling it so cheap. They're like, we sell triumphs. We don't sell KTMs. We don't service KTMs. The nearest KTM dealer, I think, is maybe in Savannah, which is like an hour and a half south of me. Yeah. So, I mean, it was just one of those things. Where it's like, you know, I, can't, I didn't feel great about it. But they had this Tiger 800 uh, sitting in the showroom. It was a 2014. It was a roadie, which meant it had the cast wheels. It didn't have the, the off-road suspension. It didn't have the wired wheels. You know, it was it had no bells and whistles. I think all I had was ABS. And I mean, I looked at it and I was like, oh, that's interesting. I might go home and research that. And I started, you know, I found Camrad videos. <laughs> yeah. you know, I find videos of Camrad running the Sandblast rally in it, um, you know, trying to ride single track through Canada, you know, with it. Uh, so I'm like, you know, okay, he's either like incredibly insane for doing this on a bike like that, or that bike is really that good. And then it opened up a world of other Tiger people like, uh, like Spurgeon Dunbar, you know, he had his Tiger at the same time. Um, I was Jones in for the uh, 800 XCX right about the same time frame. That would have been 2016, right before I bought the scramble. And I mean, like, so the, the Tiger was at growing on me very quickly. The only issue was this was a roadie that I had saw 
And like the dealer wanted like five grand for it. Like it was a steal. That would be a steal today by nobody's business. Yeah. And it was just that roadie thing where like, you know, okay, Camrad's, you know, off-roading the roadie. Okay. I get it. But I'm not Steve Camrad. <laughs> so I ended up stumbling across um, Jen's Moto Adventures on Instagram. And I saw that she had a Tiger XRX. I think that's what she had at the time. I actually think she brought that to my rally that year. I don't know and, if that was 18 or 19. Go ahead. So and actually the picture that set it off was her doing a water crossing actually at your rally. I'm pretty sure. Okay. There you go. Um, and then her and uh, her friend, he had a, they had matching ones. They bought them together. And like, I, I, I mean, I, I bugged her for like hours. I'm like, you know, how does it ride? How does it do this? How does it do that? Like, can you do, you know, off-road riding? And she's sending me pictures of like, you know, it buried in clay in Kentucky, like, you know, at your rally or doing water crossings through Southern Indiana. And she's like, yeah, so I can do this. They took it to Colorado and all kinds of stuff. She, yeah. she did a lot of traveling with that bike. And, and she's like, you know, she's like, it's, it's a great bike. Uh, by the way, I'm selling mine. If you uh, want me to, <laughs> you know, I'll throw it in the back of my truck and I'll bring it to Charleston. You just, you know, you got to buy it and, you know, find me a brewery or a place for dinner or whatever. And I mean, it was tempting, but at the other, at the other end, I was like, nah, I kind of already got one here. It's, you know, a little cheaper, not a, you know, not a storied history, but a little cheaper. Yeah. She had a second generation, but, uh, but she sent me, but like, she, she put me at ease. She's like, you know, it is a good bike because at the time from, you know, and this was how forums and social media were and all that stuff, you know, everyone's like, oh, triumphs are expensive. British bikes always leak oil. And then you, you, you just throw in a typical, you know, you can't get parts for them, this and that. And she's like, that's, that's stupid. Like you can get anything for them. They're very reliable. Like it's not the 1950s anymore. No. And so at that point, after talking to her, you know, after talking to Camrad, after talking to so many people, they're like, you know, it's the, it's a very underrated bike for what it is. So I went to the triumph dealership a couple of days later and, you know, I was like, Hey, you still got it. Yep. Pulled the trigger on it, brought it home. And that was the beginning of, you know, really my first adventures with a bigger bike. And I mean, I had probably, I had that bike for a year. And the way I looked at it when I bought that bike was I called it my gap bike. It was going to buy me a year where I could save the money for, you know, a KTM 790, which those were kind of coming out at the time. The Yamaha T7 was on the horizon. (laughs) In, in in Europe, we were yeah three years in the future. <laughs> yeah, we like we were you know they still said like oh it's gonna come to America. They just uh, got released in Europe and we just got them last year. But uh, so I mean there were so many bikes on the horizon, and I was like you know I, I'm gonna take this year I'm gonna ride as much as I can, improve my skills with a bigger bike, do some touring around you know Southern Appalachia, and we'll go from there. And what really kind of turned out out of that was I figured out that I did not like the Honda Africa twin hardly as much as I thought I would. I really um, want to circle back to this conversation, but keep telling the story. Okay. Um, you know, I test rode a KTM 790 at a demo day and it was a great bike. Just wasn't the bike for me. Um, I rode a BMW 850 GS uh, at another demo day. And that was the bike I fell in love with, believe it or not. Like that was the bike that 
you know, if they would have had the color scheme and everything that I wanted, I probably would have, you know, signed, signed the forms that day. But this is you owning the Tiger 800 shopping yes. for the replacement. Okay. Yes. Um, and when I bought the Tiger 800, I kind of had an idea. I was like, look, it doesn't have everything I want, but it'll do the job for now. And I mean, some people I've talked to are like, well, that's kind of dumb because you bought a bike twice. Like, not really. Like it bought me, it bought me time more than anything. And because you never know when Yamaha was going to release T7. Just at that time, you, you didn't know. It was going to be one month. It was going to be a year. You didn't know. And the T7 was on my list for the longest time too. Um, but uh, so with the, with the 800, I mean, it was great. I mean, I rode so many different bikes and towards the end of it, the 900 had just came out and Brett Fox out in Colorado. I can't think of his Instagram name for the love of. Mm. That's odd. Cause I don't think I know him. Asphalt and beyond. That's what it is. Yep. I do know him. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, yeah. So Brett had one of the first Tiger 900 rally printers, and he was doing things that probably shouldn't be done with Tiger 900 rally pros. But I mean, he was proving out how capable the bike was. Camrad had just got his, and he released the uh, the video review on like you know his experience with it at the Triumph Immersion event, and Jenna was at the same event. She was like, that bike is amazing. If I didn't have a KTM, I would have that bike. And so at that point, I'm like, all right, the tiger people are back to having tigers or liking tigers again. So, you know, I'm going to go look for one. And I told my triumph dealership, I was like, look, you know, I'm not going to buy a 900 now, but if you get one that's white, that has, you know, that's a rally pro that has, you know, TKC eighties on it for tires, you know, all this stuff, you know, I'll probably come buy it. Well, two weeks later, they had a white tiger with TKC eighties an arrow exhaust sitting in the showroom with like a bunch of other tigers. And I was like, can I test ride it? I'm like, yeah, sure. Go ahead. And my triumph dealer and I have a great relationship. It's, it's pretty much, I walk in the door and they start throwing keys, <laughs> um, which can also be very, very deadly. I need to come visit your Triumph dealer. We need to talk about this. You'd you'd love it. And I mean, so, I mean, they threw me the keys. They're like, Hey, there's a full tank of gas in it. Just we we, like, we know what you can do. So I rode it for about 70 miles. Um, You know, took it on some dirt roads, some gravel roads, you know, highway speeds, cranked it up in, in street mode to see, you know, how fast I could get it to go. Stuff like that. Uh, Things, you know, you're not supposed to do on a test ride. But, uh, you know, after that, I was like, I'm, I'm sold. This, this is the bike. I'm, this is the bike. And I went back to the dealership. They gave me a very fair offer for my 800. And I brought home the, the rally pro that night and slept on the couch that night as well. Cause my wife was unaware I was going to bring home a 2020 triumph tiger rally pro. We talk about it's a white tiger. It's just like the other one that was just here. In fact, there really <laughs> isn't a big difference. Yeah, she's too she's she's too smart for that. Uh, I, I see your your uh, your military <laughs> wife also knows the details. <laughs> she wasn't. We weren't married oh, no. when I was in. Yeah. No, we were dating and engaged. But she and I kind of kept her away from the military. <laughs> Not necessarily a bad plan for various reasons. But I mean, 
so but i mean she's a medical laboratory scientist and she's yeah. a very analytical person so she's like thinking 30 steps ahead whereas you and i are probably like two steps ahead yeah one yeah <laughs> what so, do i have to do tomorrow so uh I, I at first i was like maybe i could play off the whole white tiger thing and then i'm like no that is not going to work with her <laughs> but uh so yeah i mean i pick up the rally pro and i mean immediately it was just like that was to me that was the ultimate bike for me um it did everything i needed it to you know, it could travel five, 600 miles on the, on the highway, cruise control, heated seats, heated grips, very comfortably, um, you know, dirt roads, sand roads, gravel roads. It can ride those. It can ride two track. It can do single track. Um, my skills aren't probably there yet. I need to go take one of Andy's classes to get, you know, reacquainted with a bigger bike, mm, but, uh, maybe we'll see you in September. <laughs> well, I'm, I think we, I think it might actually happen this year. That would be awesome. Well, first tell me, uh, Tiger 800 versus Tiger 900. What is it about the 900 that makes it better for you? So to me, every, and I don't want to call them flaws. Well, I mean, every, everything that was quirky or strange with the 800 triumph fixed or improved with the 900. Um, you know, with the 800, the, the rear pegs or the rear passenger pegs were welded to the rear frame and it was not a subframe. So if you got hit hard enough or dropped the bike hard enough, you essentially totaled the bike. Um, the 900 does not have that at all. You have the, the, um, the removable subframe. Uh, the engines are completely different. I mean, the 800 has, you know, it's more throaty. It's got I mean, I've heard it's got a little bit more torque, you know, it's got, it doesn't have the overall power, but in the low end, like that thing, that thing can run. Well, they changed the, the, the crank orientation on that. Right. And it's really good. And like, so you've got that T-plane crank in the, in the 900 and it's, I mean, yes, you have the torque, you have the, the, the top end. Mid-range, you're kind of, you know, you don't have what the 800 had, but you don't need it. At least I don't think it does. Um, but, I mean, the engines are totally different. And then you have the electronics. You know, you went from, a, I think, the 2018, 2019 XCX is like the, the TFT dash was like seven inches. It was tiny. Um, and I think you had like three riding modes, whereas the, the Rally Pro, I mean, you have a massive TFT dash. You have like seven different riding modes, two different ones for off-road. Um, I mean, it's just the electronics of, of the 900 is it's 20. It's, it's a, it's a 2020 bike compared to like a 2014 bike kind of deal. I mean, there's just so many different, you know, things that, they, that have advanced technologically in motorcycles that that bike has. Yeah, I think uh, the the 2016 XCX range was uh, first throttle by wire and mostly yep. just like suspension, like very functional upgrades. And I think you're right that the the new 900, I, I just it, it took all the best stuff from sport bikes and threw it at an adventure bike. And like, and after owning like the 900 for a year, what it kind of seems like to me is they took aspects of the Daytonas. Yep. I think they, I think it was the Daytonas and kind of started merging that with the off road type suspension and stuff like that. So like 
a lot of the IMUs and the electronic ABS, you know, all these little things you had on the sport bikes for Triumph started making their way over to the Tiger lineup. And with the 900, it was like full blown, like the evolution of everything right there. And I think we're about to see the evolution of all over again with the new Tiger 1200s, because now they have stuff that the 900s don't even have at all. The 1200 was so long in the tooth. Um, oh, <clears throat> I mean, obviously I've, we, we could talk about the, the modern classics being long in the tooth, but in an, in a spectrum where people are throwing down 20 grand for a bike, it was very long in the tooth. Yeah. And like, and I test rode a couple 1200s. Um, I test rode, it was like a 1200 tiger Explorer. Great bike, like great bike. But for what I would, for what you're paying for, I would rather spend two grand more and get the GS 1250, which yeah. I mean, that that's kind of like, you know, for some people that's the Holy grail for an adventure bike. Um, but I mean the 900 compared to the 800, I mean, it's a night and day difference. And I yeah. think everyone who has a 900 and has owned an 800 will tell you the same exact thing. Like it's, you almost can't compare them because they're totally different bikes. It's, I mean, and that's why I enjoy talking to people um, because that's what I wanted to get into. It's like I said about the Africa twin versus the tiger, like motorcycle taste is so interesting to me. And I think that a lot of us have gotten caught in um, who we hang out with, what kind of bike we own. And we know other people that own the same brand and stuff. But the reality is, is each one of us has a very unique taste. Uh, yep. And, and I, I agree with you wholeheartedly uh, as a guy who's really into, you know, big bikes doing dumb shit off road. The 900 is a phenomenal bike for that, but I can see an argument that says that if you are a, you know, 90 plus percent street person, man, oh, yeah. you don't like all the farkles and you don't want all the technology, dude, you need to go get a smoking deal on a Tiger Roadie because they are the shit on the asphalt. <laughs> so a couple months ago when the 850 Sports uh, started getting pushed out, my dealership, let, you know, they had some of the first ones on the East Coast uh, and they had one of the first demo bikes threw me the keys. I went out and played on it. And I was like, it was like very nostalgic because it had so much in common with my 800 roadie. Really? And I was like, it's kind of the same concept, but you have the newer engine with the T-plane crank. You have a much better suspension. You have a lot of the, the IMUs and the electronic riding aids and all that stuff that you didn't have six, six seven years ago. So it was essentially like a modernized 800 roadie which is 50 more CCs. And, yeah. you know, I, I mean, I was able to spend quite a bit of time on that bike and I, I wrote a pretty interesting blog entry about it that I didn't really think, you know, it was just my opinion on the bike and someone from triumph actually reached out to me and was like, you know, do you think we could, could we borrow this or, you know, could, could we hear what, you, you know, someone else has to say about this? Good. And, you know, I ended up talking, I can't remember their name for the life of me. It was almost a year ago, well, but it was not to mention you're recording a, uh, a podcast, which always means I forget everybody's yeah. names. Right. <laughs> you know, but, uh, I mean, it was, it, it was just interesting. Cause I was like, man, like this is the bike for 11 grand. If I'm getting into adventure motorcycling, or if I'm, I have a bike that's going to be on the pavement for 80% of the time, this is the bike to get. Yeah. And now you go onto the forums adventurerider.com and everyone's like why did triumph make the 850 this is the stupidest thing ever you know why did they do this and this like it can't do anything it's got cast wheels and it's like 
you throw a set of good tires on it, you don't hit potholes at 50, that bike will pretty much take you anywhere you want to go. I, I mean, that bike is aimed squarely at people like me. Uh, the, the, I mean, the reality is, is I would want a 900 Rally Pro. I would want a Scrambler 1200 XE. But I know what I do to motorcycles that I'm like, I will be upside down tomorrow on a $15,000 oh, yeah. bike. It's just a horrible investment. And I go, hmm, 11 grand, huh? Yeah, I mean, I'm on 1917s now. So I can have 1970s with uh, more technology and better suspension than I have on the Scrambler. Yep. I mean, hell, it's the same price as a street Scrambler. Absolutely. Let's do that. That's a great idea. <laughs> and like, I think that's, and that's one thing I'm noticing out here. Cause I ride, I mean, I ride with a pretty interesting group of guys, you know, pretty, pretty diverse. And most of them probably have, you know, those, the, the $16,000 to $20,000 bikes. I got a couple of younger kids though, that are just getting into it who think, you know, that's the bike I need to have. I need to go have the tiger 900 rally pro. And it's like, no, spend 11 grand and buy something that's cheaper and work your way up or, you know, buy a KLR and, you know, <laughs> save your money and then buy the, 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 the newer bike, you know, five years later. But I mean, I just, I just hate how a lot of times you see people who are thinking like, if it's not a KTM, if it's not a Tiger 900 Rally Pro, if it's not, you know, the, the higher end BMWs or Africa Twins, like it's, it's not an adventure bike. And it's like, no, like, you can, you can do anything. You can do an adventure on anything. Like, and that's what's like, I love watching some of your older stuff is you take a scrambler <laughs> places. Like, I don't think some people will take a four stroke dirt bike. <laughs> I'm in deep shit. Uh, I'm going to say that at the time of publishing this podcast, it's still a rumor, but uh, there's heavy discussions about KXCR launching an adventure class this year at every race. And I'm like, oh shit, I got to put numbers on my scrambler and get ready to go to work. Uh, it's uh, it's going to be horrible. I'm not going to stand a chance against anybody that's on 701s and whatnot, but I'm like, I got to do it at least once. That That's almost as bad as Camrad blowing up my Instagram like the last three weeks. He's like, hey, man, you're going to ride the sandblast? You're going to race in the sandblast? You're going to race in the sandblast? I bring in a scrambler. My buddy Rob's going to be there. Like, And he's dr name dropping all these people I know, and I'm like, dude, I'm not going to ride my Tiger, which is the only bike I have you know, and race it in this sandblast. He's like, dude, it's going to be fun. It's a piece of cake, easy rally. You got it. And he just keeps blowing my Instagram every day. And I'm like, come on, man. Like, no, I can't do it. Um, I want to go down there and do it so bad, but it's a $400 investment for me. Yep. Plus, plus the hotels, vacation time, all that stuff. I'm like, dude, I'm going to do it eventually. But right now I just, I can't, I can't do it. And that's like the main reason why I'm not going to do it is like, don't get me wrong. Like I know the bike can do it. I'm pretty sure I could do it riding, riding skill wise, like the whole navigation, roll charts. And all. I'm pretty sure I could do all that. It's the $400 fee just to race for yeah. one day. And I'm like, now if, I mean, and this is what I hate with racing. Cause I used to do racing when I was in Colorado and it was affordable. It was cheap. It was easy. It was affordable. It was fun. And I've noticed like the racing out here is just so much more expensive like we had a dual sport. I don't want to call it a race. It was like an adventure rally through the woods um, last weekend. And it was like 220 bucks. 
I'm like, man, 220 bucks buys me a lot of gas and gas station food. And I can cover some serious distance. That's the season of tires for a lot of people, man. Yeah. 300 bucks <laughs> is the season of tires for most riders easily. So, and, and that's one of the things like I don't like with, you know, the Southeast and the racing down here for adventure or dual sport racing is it's just so expensive and it's, I mean, I get it. You know, you got to pay to play. I completely understand that concept. I used to, you know, race my race, my Subarus all the time, but I mean, $400 to blow for, you know, a seven hour race where I'm going to just get the snot kicked out of me, like dropping that thing like at least 20 times in ankle deep sand, like does not sound appealing to me at all. It's, I mean, I'm so spoiled. I mean, I've told people that, and you got a flavor for it. Obviously, you're pretty close to Louisville, but I'm like, dude, Dayton, Ohio is so cheap. You know, going to visit grandma in Eastern Kentucky, like as soon as I cross the Ohio River, gas drops 10 cents easily. You know, everything's cheap. So racing for me is 50 bucks a weekend. Like, I can spend that on dinner. Like, screw that noise. I'm going to go beat the crap out of myself on my bike for a day and make great friends and memories. So, yeah, it's, it is a tough thing to get around when you start looking at all the big dual sport events around the country that I want to go to and are awesome events. But when you live in a place like this, you just like, man, 50 bucks seems like a great idea to go get lost in the holler, man. And what's kind of interesting with like, like South Carolina, it's a rural state. So you would expect there to be more like, you know, more racing, but the only racing we have is like motocross focused and that's it. Yeah. Like you don't have, I think we have like the two dual sport races. Um, I think one's like a national AMA event. Uh, we have the same blast rally. And then we have uh, the Broxton bridge. I don't want to call it a race, but it's like a rally. Um, but that's it. Like that's all we have. And they're all, I mean, if you were to enter all three, that's, that's a paycheck to most people. Well, so I I'll tell you what, I'm gonna put this to listeners right now. If we got people listening, I want to know, like for real, if you know good off-road riding series, be it adventure, hair scramble, whatever, send me send me a text and email because I want to publish that stuff. Um, because that's what you and I have talked about East Coast riding in general, yeah, and, and how the evolution has been. And I've told people that I am incredibly blessed. Indiana cross country racing is extremely well organized. They've been running it for several years. They have 700 plus riders that come out between motorcycles and ATVs every weekend. And everybody knows, you know, I'm a Kentucky cross country guy and they're a new series. You know, this would be, I think their third, third season coming up this year. Um, and it's awesome to have that stuff, that local, but I do think that these, you know, young startup non-AMA sanctioned races are probably harder to come by for a lot of people. So I want to promote that stuff to everybody who wants to get involved in it. And I think like, and this is where, and I know we've had this discussion, like the whole East coast, West coast thing. God, it sounds like we're talking about nineties rap right now. <laughs> um, like, like I've been fortunate enough to ride bikes across the country in many different areas. You know, I've been able to ride in Northern Midwest Rode, you know, in the Mountain West, Colorado and all that. I rode a little bit on the West Coast. But what people, I mean, and even like out on the East Coast, people tend to forget that we're here. Like <laughs> you, you open up an ADV Moto magazine and it's everything is on the West Coast or in the mountains. And it's like, 
there's other events outside of Utah, California, and Colorado. Like, <laughs> like I remember I was watching a th- or I was talking with Camrad and he ran some rally in Bristol, Tennessee. Like it was a 180 mile, like, you know, adventure rally. And it's like, you don't hear about that. Yeah. But if you look at the people who raced in it and what it is, you're like, man, that's, that's like a mini, a mini Baja, but in the mountains of like Tennessee and Virginia, like people need to know about that. There's, there's a new rally in Kentucky forming at the same time. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting involved in both of those first chance I get, keep going. But I mean, that's just, and that, that's one of the things like I kind of dislike with the industry and the segment and how things are going. It's everyone has the focus towards the West coast in the East coast. We have a lot to offer, but I don't know if it's that people just like, I don't know what it is about the East coast that just people ignore. And I mean, I've had this conversation with, I was on a podcast, um, throttled adventures earlier in the year and they're one of them is from utah and the other guys from uh western massachusetts we were having the same thing like the east coast in our opinion and there's a lot of people that'll say this the east coast has in areas more difficult riding than areas of the west coast or the mountain west by a long shot but because the mountains are smaller because you're in a you know thick tree canopy you know because you're not hanging off the side of a, of a 10,000 foot mountain. It's just, you don't get the, the you don't get the publicity or the knowledge of what's really out here. It's it, oh man. It's so many different things. Um, and it, it's funny because in the COVID era and the way that news works, I, I think that, and it's not exclusive to America, obviously, but I think that a lot of us don't understand the scale um, and, and you get it. I mean, you've been deployed overseas. You know what it means to fly 7,000 miles across the globe, how long that actually takes. And P.S., you only went a quarter of the way around. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we just took a whole day to fly here. We're, only half, we're not even halfway there. Um, when you've done that, you get it. Uh, but, you know, like, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but it's like it to go from Maine to Washington is like two and a half days nonstop in the car. Like, yep. So we, we compare ourselves to Europe with respect to politics and motorcycles and whatnot. And I'm like, you don't understand, like the United States is massive. And I've talked to people from California and it's like, California is like the third largest economy in the world. Uh, it's like, we have to understand that like California would be a country anywhere else, yep. except because it's part of the United States that's not, but it's that big. So, and I think that's part of it is motorcycle ownership is so common in California and California has such great weather most of the time that like it's the motorcycle Mecca for most of us. And I look forward to riding in California. Uh, but on the flip side, people don't understand that as far as motorcycle ownership is concerned, it's, it's like California, Texas, Florida, and Ohio, one, two, three, four in total motorcycle ownership, uh, which is why I get, I get a little peeved that Ohio tends to be skipped over by a lot of the motorcycle events. Although it's cool because AIM Expo keeps coming back here. And it's like, does anybody want to know why? Because like (laughs) 50% of the United States population is within an eight hour drive of, of Columbus, Ohio. Uh, That's like a really (laughs) big thing. And, and 
I'm not here to go, oh, Ohio's the greatest place to ride. I'm like, no, half the state is nothing but flat as fuckistan. And I don't recommend <laughs> anyone ever ride there. Uh, people know that. They're like, Drew, why don't you ride in eastern Ohio? I'm like, because I could be in Kentucky in less time. Thank you. Check, check please. Um, but I, I think that's that's part of it is that 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 scale piece of it. But I agree completely. Is it um, who was it? Uh, Johnny Campbell. He was on uh Oh, I forget what podcast he was on last year, but he said that he's like, of all the racing I've ever done, and we're talking about Johnny Campbell, like yeah. big red, like the the guy who's out helping with Dakar at this stage, to- said the hardest race he's ever done was GNCC in <clears throat> Eastern Ohio, hardest race he's ever done. Like, wow, that's uh, that's a statement for a guy who's got more Baja wins than I know of. Well, it's like so I've ridden two BDR, three BDRs. I rode Colorado, New Mexico, and the Mid-Atlantic. And the Mid-Atlantic, to me, in a surprising way, was more difficult than New Mexico. Huh. By, now, I think the only reason why is I ran New Mexico when it was like July and dry. Yeah. I've heard New Mexico, when it gets wet, is just, it's horrendous. Like, it's, it's almost like riding in like volcanic clay <laughs> ash like it's just horrible out there um but so when i rode the mid-atlantic bdr last august i i was thinking like you know it's only a thousand miles you know i'll do it in like you know two days i've been through some of these areas in pennsylvania before nothing crazy in my first day like when i started damascus virginia start you know climbing up the switchbacks into you know up the spine of virginia into west virginia i was like uh, I completely forgot how rugged the Appalachian mountains are. And there was a couple parts where, I mean, I was smashing this skid plate of the tiger on some good sized rocks, I'm climbing a couple ledges. And I'm like, huh, did not expect this for the easiest BDR. I'm using air quotes for easiest. That's right. Good you know, radio. You know, the easiest BDR that's, you know, out there. And like, even outside of that, like, there was parts in Pennsylvania, I was like, huh, this is yeah. going to be interesting in some areas. But, and, I mean, granted, like, those weren't the alternate routes that were the harder routes. These were, like, the, the, the main routes. I'm like, wow, they either really need to maintain this road or this is a lot harder than people think it is. It's, I mean, to me, it's, I mean, hair scrambling. Uh, just any adventure riding. And I, I always tell people to, you know, buy more tires than you actually need because it's cheap talent. But it, yeah. what goes with that though, is like when it's dry, any set of tires will work out, but man, rain is the great equalizer. Like it is amazing how wet terrain completely changes everything. And I think that's the biggest issue here on the East coast is, is just, it has been, and I, I can't compare it to Washington. I've, I've ridden in Seattle. <laughs> it rained. Um, but uh, <laughs> here in the Midwest, it's like, it goes from everything. Like it is hot, humid and miserable and dry to just the absolute monsoon. And I mean, anybody who's been listening to the podcast for a long time knows my podcast with uh, Jeff Stess from the Kentucky Adventure Tour. They're like, when's the best time to ride? And it's like, whenever you show up, because there's no <laughs> good time to ride Kentucky because the conditions yep. change tomorrow. You'll, you'll see something completely different tomorrow than you saw today, just because of the way the weather is just so inconsistent, how the springs can be so awful or things arrive late or just, you know, the cicadas of the, of the spring last year that cut a whole two weeks out of the riding season for most of us. Well, like when I was stationed at Fort Knox, actually, I'm, no, it was basic training. 
I went to basic from like January to April, I think it was. And I, I remember like in February, you know, one day it was 70 degrees and sunny. You're like, Oh, nice. You know, Southern, Southern, Southern winter. The next day it rained and you're like, okay, this sucks. Uh, and then the next day it was like 30 and there's a foot of snow on the ground yep. and you're like, what is going on? And it's the Ohio river Valley, like that yeah. whole area. And then you throw in like, you know, stuff coming off the Atlantic ocean and you're like, um, our weather is not predictable by any <laughs> means at all. Like it's just not going to happen. And like when I did my Mabder trip, um, we were in Pennsylvania because uh, I ended up meeting up with a with another guy to ride with. We were in central Pennsylvania and we left state college and it literally was like someone just turned on a fire hose and just doused us for probably three hours. And we're, you know, crawling up the mountains through central PA. That's a rough get- spot to be. That's some of the hardest <laughs> parts of the BDR. There. Yeah. And we got to an area where there was an alternate route that we really wanted to ride. Um, and it was a downhill descent into Pope Hattie state park. And there's some like unbelievable, you know, overlooks and stuff like that. It's, I want to say it's a two mile long route. The problem is there's so many rocks and it was so wet and there's moss and all that stuff everywhere. It's like, neither one of us was like, man, if we go down the risk to injury is huge. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're not worried about break, breaking the bikes. Like, you know, it is what it is, but it's like, man, if you break your leg where we were, it's like, ah, there's no ambulance. It's a helicopter coming to get you. That's a weird thing for, for folks that don't know. And obviously this is one I do have experience with. I've been pretty limited, but I, I love Kentucky because it's so diverse, but most of the rocks are mostly sandstone. That part of Pennsylvania is, and I've called it, it, it's bony. Like, it's weird. Like, yeah. we talk about baby head rocks, but I'm like, no, they're like fixed in the ground. Like, like it's like the dirt's armored. Like, it's ridiculous. You know, like you got huge chunks of slate just like sticking out the side of yeah. the hill. And you're like, uh, that's like an inch of moss growing on that. Yeah. And when it's dry, you're like, oh, it's a little slippery. You throw some water on there and it's like ice. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, at that point, we're like, we're going to bypass this route. And we were really disappointed. We're like, man, that was a, like part of the route we really wanted to take. But on the other hand, you're like, man, if, you know, that back tire gets a little too much throttle and slides yeah. one way, like you're gone. Like you're yeah. you're going to break something and it's not going to be a pleasant experience at all. Uh, I'm going to put this out in the universe. Bald Eagle State Forest is absolutely stellar. Um, And I wrote it at Conserve the Ride when RevZilla was doing that. They need, I hope they get back to doing that. That was a phenomenal rally. I would like to see that come back. So the Pennsylvania part for me of the Mabder was definitely a trip back to memory lane because many, many years ago um, after high school, I went to a small college in central Pennsylvania called Lockhaven. And one of my roommates, um, he grew up racing Enduros in that, in Bald Eagle. And I went with him one weekend and he had like an old clapped out. It was an old Husqvarna, like HT 100 from like 1975. And I rode that little thing around there. And I was like, all right, this is cool. But when I went back this time on the tiger, I'm like, man, I had no idea how, how, how cool of an area that is. Yeah. Um, and you know, you, and you see like some of these guys on Instagram, you know, 
racing out there and all that. And I'm like, man, I wish we had events like that, you know, further South. Cause I mean, you're, you're not only racing, but you're also racing the terrain too. That's I rode the scrambler from home to that part of Pennsylvania. I stopped to the highest part of Maryland, the highest part of Pennsylvania. And after spending as much time as I have in, in Eastern Kentucky and going there, I was like, it amazes me that it's the exact same mountain range and it is completely different in Eastern yep. Pennsylvania. I mean, it's muddy and whatnot in some certain spots, but it just, the way that the terrain is so much harder, hard packed being an Amish country, like it, it it's awesome. Cause there are those, like you said, this little sleepy colonial towns and stuff. Like it's, it is an awesome place to go visit. People need to go check it out. Oh, that's like Appalachia in general. Like mm. Appalachia, in my opinion, like does not get, I mean, and maybe it's because it's been, it's older and it's been here longer. It's not as, you know, it's not the old West where, you know, it's, it's still a fairly new thing. Like you get into parts of Northern Georgia, um, Western North Carolina, Tennessee, South Carolina, like there are some little places out there that are just unbelievable to ride through or to just explore. I mean, last, I want to say it was last May, a couple of guys and I went out to uh, a place up in Northern Georgia and we ended up riding over towards Teleco Plains up into, uh, you know, Tennessee and into parts of West North Carolina. And I mean, it was fantastic riding out there. And like some of the off pavement riding we did was, I mean, we went through one area that, I mean, you had huge slate ledges that were just smashing the skid plates of all of our bikes. And we're like, man, this is kind of, this is, <laughs> this is Georgia. Like, yeah, this, this is like, really? But that, I mean, that section of the tri-state, something else. Hey, that's another good point. What it, it, to me, it's like Kentucky is like really staggering terrain that goes from sand to loam to really shitty mud slippery clay sandstone like it's all this weird stuff and it's all really radical in pennsylvania like i said it's bony but that part of tennessee there's so much of that just rock that's buried in the ground that you're right like there is no ground for for 100 feet you're on you're on solid rock and it's you know it's steering your wheel because of the grooves that are in it like you said there's a there's a grain to the to the stone yeah that's a good point that's uh for folks that know that's a wit road outside of teleco plains there's a several sections like that it there's a creek crossing where the the grain of the stone will steer your happy ass right into the water if you're not careful yeah it's just i mean that area, I mean, and that area doesn't, I mean, everything you see is, you know, Utah, Colorado, California. It's like, well, we have this out here that I can promise you if it's raining, it's pretty just as bad, if not worse. Yeah. So, but I mean, this summer, I mean, I'm kind of, you know, looking forward to getting back out there. And especially since, you know, Jenna West, you know, now lives in Atlanta, which is only like five hours away. Her boyfriend, you know, he's a big, I think he works for Triumph. He's got a sweet Tiger 900 Rally Pro. So I'm hoping that all of us can link up, you know, cause some chaos up in Northern Georgia, then head our way up to Kentucky and see you. So I'm hoping that stuff works out. Uh, I'm waiting on a lot of stuff to happen this year. So I'm trying to be real noncommittal, but I've already booked a rally and I'm hoping, hoping folks can come out and, and it's not, Oh my God, everybody needs to come to my event. No, it's like, no, this is like my, <laughs> this is my party weekend. I need everybody to come out for this one and hoping that I can make it this year. 
Well, like normally, like my old job, like that was in the middle of our fiscal year audits every year. So last year I thought I could pull it off. And then they're like, no, you can't. I'm like, darn. But my buddy went out. Um, My buddy Chris went out and he was like, you know, dude, you got to get out there. You know, you know, it's, it's, it's well worth it. And, you know, him and I are already wargaming right now. We're like, all right, because he's got a huge like overland camper van type deal. He's like, yeah. you know, we'll we'll get a trailer. You know, we'll throw my seven ninety on. We'll throw your nine hundred on. My other buddy will throw his eight fifty on. We'll we'll just go. And I'm like, all right, yeah, we we can figure this out. <laughs> well, and that, that's the thing. I mean, obviously, it's about based on vacation time. But it's like people can make the week of it. There's lots of places to stay. I only host the rally for four days, but I mean, it's funny because my dad my dad comes down on his Harley, and obviously, he only rides pavement. And he's like. <laughs> you know you're running this big off-road adventure rally is there a place with me to ride i'm like dad you can't ride it all in a weekend there's just no way you can't not ride no. you can't even ride all the dirt in a weekend let alone all the pavement there's double triple the amount of miles on pavement to ride there's so much to see and and that's the thing is you can ride the same dirt year after year it's different next weekend can you imagine what it's like after a shitty spring i mean they've had massive flooding in different parts around the neighborhood you know oh year. yeah so. Yeah, and then you know you get all the extra river sediment all washed up in the creeks, and what used to be just nothing but rock is now like clay and sand. And, I, yeah, I mean, for folks that don't know, <laughs> I, I mean, obviously, I, I host Red River Scramble, and I I look at I've created predetermined routes, and they're based on difficulty level. I use Brett Tax's metric for adventure riding to rate them, and that's it. Last year, the flooding was so bad in the spring. Actually, it may have been midsummer. They had to come in with a, a bucket loader and plow through a, a road. And when they did that, they created like, I don't want to say it's a foot deep, but it's easily an eight inch water crossing and it's still water. So you, once somebody goes through it, you can't see it anymore. So like they created a water crossing that turned an intermediate route into what is arguably a hard route, but it's just a hundred feet of a water crossing that you don't know how deep it is. Otherwise it wouldn't be that difficult, but that's just, just the way the nature of the beast, you know? Huh. But now other than that, I mean, I'm looking forward, I'm looking forward to probably heading up there. And then we have a route out here that my friend, Chris, um, you know, he kind of developed on his own and I've been helping him add to it. It's like it's it's called a South Carolina Adventure Route. Cool. And I guess it's like our ver- it's our version of a BDR. Um, yeah. Just not as technical. Sure. But uh, basically, it's like a thousand mile loop around the state, and it's pretty tame. Like you can do it in four days. Does he have it posted somewhere? Yes. Um, I want to say it's like South Carolina Adventure Route or com or something like that. Um, if you just type that in into Google, it'll bring you to the actual Wix site, and then type that into like Instagram and it goes to their Instagram page. I'm and I'm sure, I'm sure you'll see pictures of my tiger, like all over that place. But, uh, so like the last couple, last couple weeks, I was like, Hey, you know, can we make an extension to the route? You know, that kind of covers the more Northeastern part of South Carolina towards like Myrtle beach area. So last weekend I was kind of helping them with that. And, uh, th- there's his only criteria is it has to be as much dirt as possible. Uh, it has to be a public road. Can't be private. Yeah. Um, and I f- crap, what's the third one? Can't, I forget what the third one was. But uh, like the first two is fairly easy, you know, to, to, to figure out. And with the OnX app, 
you know, it kind of tells you who owns public land or private land, stuff like that. On X, um, is that what you said? Yeah, on X off road. It's a good resource. Good call. Um, and I was using them in Rever. And basically, like I, you know, that's how I was mapping out my routes. But uh last weekend, like I actually drove, you know, 170 miles of a 233 mile leg that I'm, you know, trying to make. And I told them, I'm like, man, if we if we can pull this off, this is gonna have to be an alternate route because there's some parts out here that are pretty bad. Nice. And I mean, within, I'd say a 50 mile segment, you go from, you know, beach sand to Kentucky red clay to, gra- <laughs> to gravel to the Kentucky or the South Carolina sand hills, which is like, you know, ankle deep sand pretty much. Um, and I mean, that's a 50 mile segment. So nice. it's, I mean, it's going to be definitely challenging for a lot of guys on, you know, big bikes, but even smaller bikes, I think it'll definitely, definitely throw people for a loop, especially when they get into the, the South Carolina sand Hills, Cause that's a very unforgiving area. So yeah. it's, I don't get into enough sand to really get a chance to challenge myself. So you said adventure route down there and I'm like, yeah, I need to make it a point to go see that. Cause I, I love the pine trees. It's got to be one of my favorite parts about being stationed in South Carolina, parts of Georgia, just all of these palmetto trees, man, and just how gorgeous it is to be among all the conifers because here it's, you know, mostly soft or uh, hardwoods. Yeah. Well, it's like, so the South Carolina Adventure Out, the interesting thing with it is it starts out the Atlantic Ocean. It starts on Edisto Island, literally on the beach. That's cool. And then you ride it. Um, there's there, I mean, it's probably 60% off pavement, 40% pavement. Good. Um, and the paved portions are all like narrow backcountry roads. Good. They are, you'll be lucky if you see like someone else, you know, out there. That's the best. But, uh, I mean, it takes you up through, you know, we call it the ag belt, the agricultural belt where you have the big cotton fields and the soybean farms and sugarcane fields and all that. It takes you up through there, through the central part of the state. And then it kind of works its way around, um, in towards the Jocasee Gorges, which is basically the small sliver of the Appalachian Mountains that comes into South Carolina. So you kind of skirt through there. You get some elevation. I think you get up to like 3,000 feet. I was curious how close you get to the highest point in South Carolina. Um, well, actually, I think you ride right past it, actually. Good. I've been there. That's I went there. That was my last trip to Deals Gap. I went there. It's pretty. It's a neat place. It's a good view there. Really good and view. It actually takes you uh, through, like, it's called Caesar's Head through that area, flat top mountain. Uh, basically it kind of cuts through like the Northern tip of South Carolina. And then you start dropping back down, you come into the sand Hills or you bypass the sand Hills, but then you start following like a bunch of river networks back down towards Charleston. And like on that, those portions, like those are dirt and sand roads through, you know, farm country. And, you know, you're in the pine barrens. You're, I mean, you're in some pretty, desolate areas um where i mean you'll see you know the old moonshine still in the backyard like you're in some pretty interesting areas i love it and then it it cuts down in the francis maria national forest which is all forest roads and then it works its way back up north of charleston but i mean it's a i mean it's probably a four-day trip it's not technical do you know i want to say it's a thousand maybe over a thousand 
that's, I mean, that's what I remember most about basic training, right? It was like, you're on like the fire roads forever, just walking, walking, walking. Uh, but, but if you're a hiking outdoorsy person, I, it just, it's just so gorgeous to be in that little, you know, ec- you know, outskirts of Appalachia and, uh, and being on those, those sand wash forest roads. It, it's just beautiful. Well, I was riding, I want to say it was last summer. I was riding in the Savannah River Valley, um, the border of, of Georgia and South Carolina. And I didn't realize how rocky and rural it was up there. Because wow. I got into some, like, I want to say it was 1,000, 2,000 feet in elevation. There were some ridge lines where I was like, oh, wow. Like, this is something I would expect in West Virginia, Virginia, yeah. Pennsylvania, not in South Carolina. Um, but I mean, it's a, I mean, it's, it's a pretty, it's a, it's a fun route. I mean, I've, I've ridden the entire thing once, but I mean, I spend a ton of time riding portions of it over by me near Charleston and it never gets old. I mean, it's like areas in Kentucky, like they change all the time too. So I'm kind of curious to see how this freezing rain is going to turn out. (laughs) That's funny. You said 2,000 feet. Somebody on the West Coast just laughed their ass off just now. Yeah. <laughs> and 1,300 feet at Grandma's house is uh, the top of the ridge line. Uh, <laughs> you have to get into Southern Kentucky and Black Mountain to see anything. I want to say that's probably only 3,000 feet. I think Sassafras Mountain, which I believe is the highest point in South Carolina, is somewhere around four, but I don't remember. Yeah. It's only 3,000 feet at, uh, I think it's highest point in Pennsylvania, if I remember correctly. I don't remember what it's called. Yeah, there's, I mean, like when I was on Colorado, like I remember riding up Pikes Peak one time. I rode up, you know, 14,000 feet and I'm like, all right, this is cool. And like growing up in Maine and stuff like that, I'm like, yeah, I hiked Mount Washington in New Hampshire at 6,000 feet. Like, I'm not going to lie. Mount, <laughs> Mount Washington versus Pikes Peak as a guy who's never been to either one of those because I know what Mount Washington is. That's still like more badass to me. Oh, yeah. Like, and, that kind of goes back to our East coast, West coast thing is our mountains. The mountains on the West coast are, are sheer. They're rocky. You know, they're, they're, they're big. They're there. The East coast mountains are smaller, but are unforgiving. I mean, (laughs) and I, I probably need to do more research before I throw this, the stat out there, but I'm almost positive. It's pretty, pretty close. Um, Supposedly, more people need get rescued by helicopter in Great Smoky Mountain National Park or in the Appalachian Mountains than in like you know California or like Mount Rainier stuff like that. Like I remember hearing about that years ago, and I was like, "No, nah, I can't be." And then after being out here and seeing everything, I'm like, "Yeah, that could definitely be true." <laughs> I need to uh, to research that. Um, I, I should definitely put that in the notes. I should look that up to see if we can find a stat for that. Unfortunately, these days with Google algorithms, it's hard to tell if we can find anything that makes sense. It is oh, yeah. a reality. Um, I need to look at it recently, but if I remember correctly, I think it was 2014, 2015. Two people from Ohio died in River Gorge from falling off the cliff. Mind you, it's almost always alcohol late night stepping across the the barrier that they shouldn't have crossed in the first place because it's a literal guardrail and that kind of stuff. But people fall off the cliffs to their death there. I think that happened last year, the year before somebody 
uh, slipped and fell. I think it was something a little more innocent. I mean, we're talking about death regardless, but uh, yeah, it's, it is bizarre how that happens. And I, I'm sure we can make an argument that says that it's a per capita or a population density thing too, right? Like there's way more people here on the East coast. So it's easy for us to wander into the holler and get screwed up. I've told people a story of being stuck in the woods for eight hours to go one mile. <laughs> that's, yep. that's happened to me on a 95 degree day in Kentucky before, but I had an interesting stat. I got to look that up. I had one of my minions. I call him my minion. He's like my little protege. Um, he's got like a little Honda CB 500 X. And I tell him like, you know, cause he, and he overthinks everything. He's 22 years old. The kid overthinks everything. Oh, he's but, an adventure uh, rider. That's all. Of yeah. Them, right? <laughs> and he's like, you know, Hey, I'm going to go out and ride. And it was like the hottest day of the year for us. Like the hunt, the heat index was just like ridiculous. And I was like, well, if you're going to go ride off-road, whatever you do, don't ride down this one road because, you know, it's solid mud. There's massive mud holes in it that will swallow a Jeep Wrangler. Well, sure enough, what's he do? He goes down there and he buries his bike. (laughs) And he doesn't have, he didn't bring any water with him. So he ended up, you know, basically dehydrated himself and had to go to the hospital and all that. But I was like, all right, here's your sign. Yep. Here's your sign. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, there's just, I mean, and that's the one thing, like, like, I don't remember. I remember like the West coast being dry here. You have the humidity and the humidity will suck so much out of you. And I mean, like, I remember, you know, when we were riding the Mabder, the, like the one day it was super hot, and humid, we were in West Virginia and it was like, man, like, this wasn't really technical or hard, but because the humidity was 100% humidity, it's like, oh. It's murder. Did yeah. you ever go to Fort Polk? Uh, unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> so that's like, for folks that don't know, <laughs> I, was, uh, I was deployed for Hurricane Katrina. So they sent us to, I mean, it wasn't technically Fort Polk. It was like their logistical Air Force base right outside of it. But we had to sleep there that night. So Katrina had gone through. I think Rita had just left the day before. And it is 90 plus. It's 11 o'clock at night. I'm laying in a cot and I'm just wearing my PT shorts and nothing else. And I'm just laying in a stew of sweat and nastiness. I'm like, dude, I just spent 12 months in the Middle East. I've been in the Kuwaiti desert for 130 degrees. Take me back there. There's no place more miserable on earth than I can think of than the southeastern portion of the United States. The humidity there is murderous, just murderous. There's nothing else like it. So I got a quick Fort Polk story for you. So uh, my unit, when we were at Knox, we used to augment the, the opposing force at yeah. Fort Polk, basically like so Fort Polk, you have the bad guys that play like, you know, the Russians or Chinese or whatever. Oh, you mean humans, country. not alligators. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, or mosquitoes the size of birds. They are. But uh, so like our armored cavalry squadron, you know, got sent down there to augment the op four. And I want to say it was like August. Oh, and God. Yeah, I don't know whose idea that was. I was there September is bad enough. And the 82nd, we were fighting the 82nd. And there is another brigade um, that got sent in with the 82nd. And I remember hearing like the weather briefs from our Intel, like, you know, Hey, the weather today is going to be this and this. And one of the, the pathfinders was like, Hey, uh, what's the humidity rating? 
and he said what it was. And he's like, well, those boys ain't jumping at all. Cause no. I guess like the humidity was too much for like, it just wasn't going to happen. So we literally like sat out there, like in this field and our Bradleys and tanks and all that. We're all covered oh up God. in camouflage, just hating life. Cause we're like, yeah. where, are these, where are they coming from? They never came. No. And it was so hot and humid. Like the Bradley is sweating. <laughs> so like you're the the armor is like soaking wet like everything is wet inside and outside you're like this is the most miserable experience i've ever had in my life uh, i have no doubt that southeast asia is profoundly worse but as far as the united states is concerned i just louisiana is and, and georgia are the armpit of humidity that yep. most humans cannot fathom. I just, as a guy who lives in Dayton, Ohio, like I said, I've been to the, the no shit desert and, and been present for rec, you know, record temperatures. I've been to death Valley, dude, it just does not hold a candle to Louisiana no. and Georgia. <laughs> no, nah, I mean, the humidity is definitely, and there's times in the summertime when I, like, I want to go ride. Like, it seems like a nice day and you're like, <laughs> no, Ah, no. And even, even when I do ride, like when I ride in the summertime, like I'll wear like a riding Jersey with the sleeves rolled up. Yeah. I'll have like the three liter cable back, uh, water bladder on. And I'm like, I've already gone through that thing. And I'm only like two miles from the house. I'm like, man, it is. Nope. We're not riding today. We're just going to turn around and go home. That's the thing. I mean, when it, when it's late July, in August here in Dayton, it's like, yep, I'm just going to ride pavement for the next couple of weeks. This, this 90 plus is stupid. I'm not doing it. So I, I yep. can only imagine that, that what it's like to have the South. I got a buddy that lives in St. Pete. And so he's like, yeah, it's summer or sorry, it's winter. So it's riding season. So, cause in the summer, they all stay inside the air conditioning. Like it's crazy. Oh, yeah. You're going to go ride in St. Pete in July. You're high. Well, that's like in the summertime, like a bunch of us will go ride up in the mountains we're like, yep, yeah. we're going to northern Georgia. We're going to North Carolina. Like, that's, that's where we'll go. But in the wintertime, it's like, okay, you know, ride on the coast, ride in the low country. You know, it's not yeah. bad until it starts freezing rain like it is now. So, yeah, you know. that's, I mean, that's Tennessee. I mean, when we're riding there in September, it's not, it's usually cold or wet or who knows what. But I mean, if it's like super hot in September, it's like, yeah, let's go right up on the, on the skyway the blue ridge parkway and cool off because it's hot as balls down here in the valley oh yeah oh. yeah i haven't really i haven't ridden the blue ridge yet that's Dude. that's one of my that's a goal it it's tough right like um i mean for listeners that don't know i mean to me deals gap is motorcycle mecca here on the east coast you know 318 curves and and 11 miles and it's not everybody's cup of tea it's my cup of tea it's supermoto world right like any dirt bike with slicks is going to smoke any Pentagali any day of the week and twice on Sunday. Um, but just to get up on the BRP, if it wasn't for the fact that the speed limit's 45 miles an hour and you never know if you're going to about to break a federal law, that's the <laughs> most, those are the most beautiful roads. All the curves are roughly the same apex. So, I mean, you can get up to 55, 65 and just haul ass and have a good time. Obviously anybody with talent could probably break triple digits. It's just the, the fact that you may get a nasty ticket that you can't escape, that's yep. the problem. Otherwise, it doesn't get any better. Yeah, it's kind of one of those. I mean, I had the opportunity to ride parts of it on the way back from my from the Mabner trip, but I was just like, uh, no, I'm just going to go home. 
but yeah, I mean, that's just an area I want to ride so bad. So I forget the numbers. I think it's, I think it's 400 some odd miles. Um, yep. and you, you have to get off of it to get gas. There are no, nothing commercial on it at all. There are, there are rest stops and overlooks. Um, and if you know what you're doing in the South section, you can get on to the, um, uh, what is it, Bureau of Land Management or the uh, Indian Affairs? There's BLM. Anyway, there's um, there's some off-road stuff that's right under it. That's off, you know, gravel for the most part. But that stuff's fun. But it that's the thing is you have to plan the logistics. If you have a bike with a small tank, you got to really think about it. But the the view on the East Coast doesn't get much better because you're at arguably the highest points that you can get to in the Appalachian Mountains up there in the south. Oh yeah, I, I got to know, man. I've got to circle back. Tell me about this Africa twin versus the tiger. I really got to know where you're landing on this. So the Africa twin I wanted was the original white, red, and blue paint scheme. Which has grown on me significantly. Yep. Go on. I mean, that, that was the bike I wanted. Um, I test rode one and I liked it. It was, you know, had power, had, you know, I mean, it, it had good suspension. It, it was everything I wanted in a bike. The issue I have with the Africa Twin, and I don't know if they fix this on the new ones or not, is when you go to shut off like ABS and traction control and all that in the dash, when you shut the bike off, it's like you have to go through all of that all over again. Yeah. Whereas with the Tiger, it's like two buttons, like homing home in the check button and you're boom, you're done. You're good to go. So that was kind of like a, I don't want to see a deal breaker. But it was something I wasn't a fan of. And then the other thing is, like, weight-wise, I don't think people realize how heavy the Africa Twin really is. It's a big bike. It, and it's um, not just about being heavy. It's about how tall it is. Yeah. Because, I mean, I'm 5'10", and I've got a 32-inch inseam. And, I mean, I'm, 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 I can't flat-flat any of the bikes I've ever owned. But And maybe it's because I've become I'm more comfortable – you know, on a taller bike, but like on the Africa twin, like I'm on the balls of my feet pretty good. And I was like, you know, I don't know if I have enough strength about like to hold this up on one foot. Yeah. Whereas like the tiger, like, you know, I can, I can do it easily. Um, you know, the KTM seven ninety eight nineties I can do even the 1090 I can do, but like, if I'm on like, you know, a reverse slope or, you know, at an awkward angle and I have to hold the bike up, you know, with one foot, I was like, I don't know if I can do that on the Africa twin. Yeah. So, and that was kind of one of those reasons why I was like, ah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do it. And then the other reason, um, what might sound stupid to some people, but I mean, I just look at it from an aesthetic side is, uh, how to maintain it, um, to take, to get to the air filter of my tiger, you pop the seat off and it's right there. The Africa Twin, I think you have to take apart like half of the right side of the bike. Hmm. Um, and like even the Tiger 800, you know, the air filter was underneath the gas, the gas tank. Yeah. So you had to pop the gas tank up just to like get to it. Um, and because of that alone, I was like, yeah, I'm no, no, I'm going <laughs> to the Tiger 900 is easy. So it's. It's good to hear they fixed that because I didn't know that. Uh, I want to say I probably read that in an article and it was a footnote knowing what I know about the Tiger. What you were saying earlier about the Tiger, I wanted to throw out there. I got a buddy that has 120,000 miles on his Tiger 800. So like the bike can do the deal. 
Um, he burns oil. He says he goes through about a quart every 6,000 miles on that thing. Um, but I think at 120,000 miles, most people will never, ever come close. No, not at all. Like I know I've known people who have had KLRs with, you know, 80,000, 100,000 miles. And they're the same way. Like it'll drink yeah. oil. But on the other hand, it's like the average motorcycle owner, they won't even get to that. Yeah. And yeah. like, I've, I mean, I've known people that won't even hit 20,000 miles. Yeah. Like I tell people like, I've only got 10,000 miles of my tiger right now. And they're like, it's only a year old. You got 10,000 miles. I'm like, <laughs> to me, that's not a lot. Considering like I didn't ride for like three months. Yeah. But, you know, but I mean, you got other people out there who are like, yeah, I got my brand new, you know, BMW GS 1200. And oh, it's raining. I'm not going to ride today or whatever. And it has no mileage on it at all. Like five years later, you're like, oh, okay. That's, I mean, I've been that guy for the past. I mean, I did, I did a thousand miles on two dirt bikes last year. And I'd be surprised if I put that many on the scrambler. Oh, um, wow. So I, I was the average Joe last year. I mean, and it's six and one and half a dozen the other, right? Like I raced 14 races. Which, against the guys that I race with that are pros, I mean, they race like every weekend, right? They're trying to pay the bills. So 14 races isn't shit. Um, but when I think about, because I tallied up the amount of time I spent driving, I really should have saved the receipts. Because what I, God, the money I spent keeping the bike running <laughs> weekend after weekend, three sets of wheel bearings, like you could just imagine engine oil and all of this shit. And I was on a two-stroke, which really doesn't require shit, but it was still like, Dude, I just dumped so much money into just fixing the machines constantly. I bought, had to buy a new fender. So I bought a new fender for a new color and then had to buy a new fender because I broke one. You know, like just dumb stuff that just ends up adding up after a while. Uh, so that's what I was going to say earlier is I'm, I'm trying to pin down like uh, your taste because you kind of strike me as a big bike guy. Uh, and I didn't, I haven't figured out like the, the road to off-road ratio for you and the, uh, how dumb on big bikes do you want to get just yet? Oh, so I've definitely become a big bike guy. Now I'm definitely not, I'm not as skilled by Andy, um, by Andy Janik by a long shot, but I will probably do some stupid things like he's done with the Multistrada yeah. where it's like. You can't take it. You can't take a big bike up there. I'm gonna give it Watch a go. This. Yeah, I'm gonna give it a try. <laughs> uh, famous last words. But yeah. uh, so I mean, I spend most of my time off of pavement. Like I try. Yeah. I mean, I just I hate pavement. It's where accidents happen. It's where people rear end you at 35 yeah. miles an hour. Like I just I hate it. So I will purposely go out of my way to ride off pavement as much as possible. And then we don't really have a great trail system out here. We have some, you know, in Francis Mary national forest, we do have like, you know, a, a, an actual dirt bike trail system and I'll take the tiger out there. I'll air the tires down to like 14 PSI nice. and I'll, I'll go play out there and it's nothing but sand. It is nothing but beach sand. And I will go play out there and, you know, I'll dump the bike probably three or four times, but on the other hand, it's, it's all technique at that point. And, you know, there's a lot of guys out there with, you know, the two stroke and four stroke dirt bikes. And they're like, Oh, you can't do that with a 500 pound bike. Yeah. Watch this. And, <laughs> or they'll be like, you know, struggling through an area and then I'll just blow by them. And they're like, the hell dude, like you're, that's a, that's a road bike. Like, no, it's not, but 
I mean, like I, I purposely spend most of my time off pavement. Um, that being said though, I mean, I'd say I'm, I'll, I'm a 60, 40 guy, 60% yeah. of my time is off pavement. 40 is on. And the 40 is just to get to the off pavement portions. Um, I won't call it off road because I think off road and quote unquote trails have a very diverse meaning to everyone out there. And people here are like, Oh yeah, let's go trail riding. Dude, that's a dirt road. Um, <laughs> so that's why I call it off pavement. But I mean, I'll, I'm probably on off pavement areas, probably 60% of the time. That's uh, it's we could, you and I could easily do an entire podcast about that. We've only got a few more minutes before I run into my, oh, yeah. uh, my file size cap. Um, but that's it, right? Like, quote, what is an adventure bike question mark unquote? Uh, and then how do you define, you know, trails? Uh, and, and I really think that that's, it, it's a taste-based thing. And that's what you were talking about doing the XT250 or sorry, 225 and then going through the KLR thing. And I, and I think that that's the hardest thing to explain to newer riders. You go through seasons as a motorcyclist, both in what's interesting to you versus what your skills are and then what your taste is like because of all three of those things change so much it's really tough to say oh, i'll have this bike forever because it's hard to check all those boxes with one bike or you know people will be like you know i want one bike that can do everything well one bike can't do everything like don't <laughs> yeah. get me wrong like you know the ktm ktms come pretty close um the tigers come pretty close bmw is pretty close but i mean they all have their limitations to a degree. Yeah. So you're not going to have the ultimate bike to do everything. Um, like I know people right now are thinking, thinking this, the 10 or a T seven is the best bike out there. I'll be honest with you. I rode a T seven for a couple days. Don't get me wrong off pavement on dirt and gravel. It was, it was a monster. It was the bike to have, but for the 400 miles on pavement to get back to Charleston, it was absolutely horrible. I mean, granted, we're on backcountry roads and all that, but I mean, you know, it's a road legal dirt bike. What, Whereas, what, what did you not like about the T7 on pavement? Um, so I thought it was bouncy. Okay. Like, I thought the suspension was very bouncy. Um, I thought it was very uncomfortable. I mean, look, look what it is. It is a, it's, it's a semi-legal Dakar bike in theory. Um, I thought the seat was horribly uncomfortable, even with the seat concept seat that my buddy has on it. Um, I, I mean, I thought it vibrated a little bit, but I mean, it's again, it's got a 21 inch front. It was on, you know, 50, 50 knobbies like that. That's kind of what you expect. But on the other hand, it's like, I don't see how that bike to me would be comfortable doing like the Mabder trip on the way back. I rode a thousand miles straight, straight pavement. That yeah. would be horrible. And I only did 400 miles on that thing. Whereas, you know, with the Tiger or, you know, at 890, 790, whatever, you have cruise control, much more comfortable seating. Um, you know, your, the ride, the, the rake angle and the ride quality of those bikes, just so much better on pavement. Now right. on dirt, yeah, they're okay. The, the KTMs obviously are a little bit better. But, I mean, it's just, I, I didn't, I don't want to say the T7 is overrated because it's not, but there's just a lot of things that I personally did not like with the T7. And that's kind of one reason why I didn't buy one. Yeah. And the it's, fact that I couldn't, I couldn't find one either. 
I would firmly place you in the adventure category and probably more toward the off-road spectrum. And I find it interesting because I actually think that I'm in the upper echelon of the dual sport category. And so that's why I, I, I love these conversations. Cause I like, to me, like the T7 is the pinnacle of bikes for me because I know I like twins. Yep. So that's, that's part of it. And I like big bikes doing dumb shit. Um, and I've been debating about selling both of my dirt bikes and buying a CRF 300 L. And the first thing I would probably do is go do an iron butt on it just to do it. <laughs> so it's just, it's just one of those things like, Oh, I love, I love debating motorcycle taste because no one's wrong. Now, everybody's everybody's taste is correct for them. And like the other thing too, is like the adventure bikes is also people don't realize how capable they really are. Mm -hmm. Like my tiger, I will never ride that. I will never outride the tiger. Yeah, I mean, I just will never do it. But that bike can take so much abuse. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure if I gave Andy the tiger for a day, I mean, he could probably outride it, or he would be doing you know some in, insane stuff with it. You'd be like, wow, I didn't know tigers could do that. <laughs> um, but I mean, these bikes are so capable. Yeah, that, and I, I think 90% of the riders who own them don't realize how capable they really are. Yeah. I, and I think that is true. Like, I mean, I've told a lot of people like I'm fussing with my 350 um, because it's a little too much dirt bike for my riding taste. It's a little too much vibration. It's a little too raw. It's a little too much noise. And that's a little too high maintenance. And it's just those little things that when you talk to dirt bike people, like, you know, they're like, Drew, you're an idiot. Just change the oil and shut the hell up already. Uh, <laughs> but we talk to adventure bike people. They're like, oh, my God, you're going to change the oil every weekend. That's fucking insane. You know, like that kind of stuff. Um, but and that yeah, that's the rub. But I, I think you're dead on about that, that we're all fussing that a machine doesn't meet what we want in a motorcycle, but it has nothing to do with what the motorcycle's capable of. Right. Yep. And then the other thing too is like people buy these bikes um and they don't really ride them for what they're meant for. Like when I bought the tiger, it's like the reason why I got a tiger with all the bells and whistles is to do the trips like the mid-Atlantic BDR. I rode 400 miles to get to the start point. I rode, you know, the 1,200 miles of the route. And then I rode, you know, 1,200 to 1,500 miles home. Like, yeah. I, I mean, that's what an adventure, I mean, that's kind of what the adventure bike was built around. Yeah. I mean, people get on them and ride from Alaska to Argentina. Yeah, yeah. you can do it on a, you know, an XT225 or whatever, or a KLR. But I mean, the BMW, you know, the original R80, that was what it was designed to do was travel around Europe, yep. travel around Africa. I mean, go from point A to point B off pavement and then be reliable. And that's what pretty much all these bikes are right now. I think that's the rub um, is that a lot of us get caught up in this conversation and it's about what we like and what it's intended for and, and stat sheet racing. But very few of us are prepared to be like upfront with what we define comfortable as. And for what I'm currently doing, the 350 is the perfect bike because it ends up getting dragged behind whatever vehicle I'm driving. <laughs> but I hate that. And people don't understand that. But I'm like, I hate trailering a bike. I just don't like it. It's six hours in the car that I could have been riding. And that's stupid. But most people don't understand that because riding for six hours on pavement when you want to ride dirt is uncomfortable. Yep. Yeah, it's bizarre. So, 
So if people are looking for you, where do they find you? I am on Instagram at striker ADV. Uh, that's striker with a Y, not I. Um, and then I also have a online blog slash website that's strikeradv.com. And I try to do like a blog like once a month, but that's kind of that's kind of <laughs> getting more difficult right now with life. It's weird how that sneaks up on you, right? Um, if people oh, yes. are going to check out your blog, what are they going to find there? Um, I've got so. And the blog is just, it's a, it's a monster in itself. Yeah. Um, I try to just kind of do ride reports or like, you know, areas to ride. Um, I do a lot of stuff about the Southeast, like riding the Tybee Island, Georgia, or around South Carolina, um, riding the Mid-Atlantic BDR. I just released a new blog entry today about uh, the first couple of days on the, on the Mid-Atlantic BDR. Um, and then I'll do some stuff like about moto camping. Uh, there's, you know, some gear reviews on there along with, you know, my experiences with certain gear, you know, riding jackets, boots, gloves, stuff like that. Basically it's kind of more of a place for if someone's getting into adventure riding where they can kind of go to get, I don't want to say opinions or like a review, but Hey, this is what I experienced, you know, wearing this pair of boots or, you know, this is a place that you might want to ride and check out, you know, in Georgia, stuff like that. I'm going to put a caveat in here. How many years did you do in the army? I did 12 years. Okay. I, so. I think it's relevant because what I learned in the army translates to so much like weather survivability on the motorcycle. Oh, yes. So I feel like it's really good information to go, Hey, I had a bunch of government issued equipment and then the other stuff we bought to survive versus what they're selling in the motorcycle market. So this is me having lived outside. Well, I mean, in the feed off of that. So like, you know, the army issued boots are garbage. Well, I was in a very, I was in a very fortunate position in a really high speed unit where we went to Afghanistan. We were allowed to wear Merrell's. Yeah. So, and to this day, I will wear nothing but Merrell hiking boots. Um, and I'm a firm believer with gear is, you know, you get what you pay for, yeah. you know, and I have an article on there about riding jackets. You know, I wore a hundred dollar riding jacket. It was good for a year, but yeah. Is it as good as the climb latitude I have now? Not by a long shot. Yeah. Did the, did the climb jacket cost $600? Yes. But <laughs> that jacket has taken everything I've thrown at it and then some. Yeah. And we'll still, I mean, and then climbs, you know, a solid reputable, you know, manufacturer, they'll repair that thing no matter what. So yeah, that's, I, I enjoy talking about that because that's it. It's living outside has taught me about value. So yep. I remember being, like I said, I live in a place where the income is not very high. So it's like, I'm going to tell you what you need to do on a budget to stay warm and stay dry. But eventually if you can work up to an arrow stitch, a climb or a, an icon or whatever, like do it because it's worth the money. <laughs> yep. And like what I found on my blog is there's so many younger people that are getting into adventure by motorcycling and they see, you know, they see the, the BDR, you know, videos and all that stuff. Everyone's wearing Torah tech and climb and all this. Yeah. And they're like, you know, I have to have that. And it's like, no, you don't, you get the $3,000 KLR, the $150, you know, first gear jacket and a bell helmet. And you'll be good for a little while. Now, yeah. is it what I wear? No, but that's how so many guys started. Yeah. And you know, you work your way up from there. Right. You know, better than anybody. It, pro, polypropylene long johns. 
waterproof, like no joke, like cycle gear, rain gear, and a mess jacket is just as good as a $600 adventure get jacket. Yep. It just means screwing with all those damn layers all the time. Yep. So, so what do you want to leave? Uh, we'll leave the listeners with before we move on. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm literally watching. I'm literally watching the rain for like freezing rain right now. And I'm like, man, this is going to be fun for whoever has to ride to work tomorrow. <laughs> Rock solid stuff. So comments on adventure riding bikes, tigers, what you got? <sighs> There's just so many. Oh, I don't know. I feel like we could have another podcast episode alone <laughs> on so many other topics we didn't cover. I'm, um, I'm baking some up. Go ahead. If anything, I'd say just let adventure happen. Like, don't get wrapped up in the whole you need the big money gear, the big money bike to do anything. Like, you can go have, I mean, I'm living proof of it. You can go have a cross country adventure on a KLR and have just as much fun as someone, you know, who's got all the fancy stuff. So, yeah. You don't need, you know, you don't need the $20,000 bike. Not yet. <laughs> Rock solid, man. I couldn't agree more. And, uh, and with that comment, we will catch the listeners down the road.